Would you open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11? Second Corinthians chapter 11. I've said a couple of times as we're going through this difficult book to walk through that the, the Bible is a, is a book of remedies, or I should say not a book of remedies, it's a book of preventatives. It's a book of prepar preparation. Um, when, when God does what he wants to do in our lives, he prepares us. He equips us. Um, if, if, if I asked you the question, what in your life is holding you down? What in your life is difficult? Um, have you ever or do you now feel like, well, when I see the plan of God and, and making disciples and, and doing ministry and all of those things, do I feel like that's not me? Do you feel like that's not me, that I have limitations in my life, I have things that weigh me down, I have, whether it's physical, financial, or whatever it is, do you feel like, ever, that you're not able? Do you feel ever like, um, I can't until, or I'm going through something and then, or when he lifts me up, which he does. We've heard testimony to that. Um, what Paul is going to teach us today is that the most valuable part of my life is right now. The part that God, the part of my life that God is asking me to serve him is right now. The reality is that if I'm breathing, if I have a pulse and I'm a Christian, God wants to use me right now. You will find out if, if, if you're willing to accept the preventatives and the preparations that are in this chapter, we're going to see Paul's personal testimony. But more importantly, we're going to see doctrines of truth. We talked in Sunday school this morning about how God wants our mind. If he has our mind, he has us. If he has our obedience, he has us. Um, this, this picture of Jeremiah we looked at in Sunday school, our heart is wicked. There, there is nothing sourced from our heart that is good. That what God wants to do is, before our heart tells us what to do, he wants to convince us in our mind to do what he's telling us to do. Whether our heart is along for the ride yet, or it's not there yet, um, I still remember a quote from Chuck Swindoll that um, the next time that I've learned enough, he said in his later years, I, the next time that I feel like God is calling me to do something and I have everything that I need to do it, I will know that it's not God. The point that he is making is that if we follow God in obedience, our mind will direct us before our heart comes along. And our heart will come along. We looked at Romans chapter 8 this morning that, that we know that we're born again by the fact that the Spirit lives in us. And all throughout Romans 8, he's explaining what that means. When we do what God's Word tells us to do, that's instruction through the Holy Spirit, which affirms our eternal destiny. When we do what we feel is right, um, Paul will say, we're usually doing the wrong thing. We pick up our text in the middle of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16. There's going to be boasting in here, and we're going to cover quite a few verses today because it's important to get the overall picture to understand what Paul is doing when he is boasting and when he isn't boasting, but he's in fact mocking boasting. Verse 16, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then toler tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. 
So Paul is going to give us some things that following these two verses that sounds like he is boasting about Paul. Paul never in the Bible boasts about Paul. It will sound like it, and that's why we want to cover a lot of verses to see the point that he is actually making. But he has already given us this standard. Turn back to chapter 10. He is not going to do something in chapter 11 that immediately disobeys chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 12, Paul says, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. That's scripture doctrine. That is, anytime human beings compare themselves to other human beings, it's sin. It's not wise. The Bible doesn't actually tell us not to judge others. It tells us not to compare ourselves with others. The same manner in which we look at others, Jesus says, is the manner that he'll look at us. So Paul tells us there, and when we drop down in the same chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, more guardrails, more truth, more things that Paul is not going to in going to disobey in chapter 11, verse 17. But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So we have this positive and negative. Don't compare yourself with someone else. That's the negative. Boast in the Lord. That's the positive. If the second to the last song that we sang, if we can truly say that, there is nothing in this world that can change it. All of you is more than enough for all of me. That's what Paul would say. And he's going to say that loudly and clearly in this chapter. Let's read on verse 19 in chapter 11. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. Mocking there, or, or he's given a, an irony there. Verse 20. In fact... You put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Paul's talking about false religion. He has just told us earlier in chapter 11 about apostles masquerading as servants of Christ. And no wonder they do that because Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He's talking about false religion. So you think of David Koresh in the United States. You think of um, Jim Jones in the United States. Those are examples that would fit in this text. But more subtly, um, there are religions in Mendota that demand that you do physical penance. That's what Paul is talking about here. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you physically need to do something, you need to touch something, you need to partake something, you need to be sprinkled by something. And as soon as you do any of that, you nullify the gospel. What God says to be true is pushed aside. And Paul says, okay, in my boasting, we were too weak to make you physical slaves of the truth. We were too weak to give you sacraments and rituals and things that um, would debase your body that supposedly bring you closer to God. Um, as we read on verse 19, and again, we'll read farther. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face to my shame I admit that we were too weak for that whatever anyone else dares to boast about I am speaking as a fool those are words that we want to hang on to here Paul is going to do what the false teachers in Corinth and around the world and in Mendota do he is going to promote himself in the coming verses and he says, I am speaking as a fool as we go into this. 
So when we consider Paul's boasting, we're going to read verses that we are very familiar with, that he is not, in fact, boasting. Let's read on. I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And look what he says. I'm out of my mind to talk like this. Who has Paul's mind? Christ. He is outside of that when he is saying these things about himself. Then he says, I am more. If you're going to compare, if you're going to compare yourselves with yourselves and by yourselves, it's not wise. If you're going to do it, this is what it would sound like if I did it. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Paul says that if, if I stand next to these boasting ministers and I give my testimony, there's a temptation in you that you're going to say, well, we should follow Paul. He's been through even more. He's done more things. He's suffered more. He's accomplished more. He's been more effective. He's touched more lives. We go back to where he started this conversation. I'm about to speak like a fool. I'm out of my mind when I tell you that I'm a Hebrew, that I'm a Jew, that I'm sent by God, that I have worked harder, that I've suffered more. Let's, let's let Paul tell that to us in Philippians chapter 3. Verses 7 through 10, this is going to encompass the verses we just read and the verses to follow. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Think of everything that I just read about Paul's testimony. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a follower of Christ, a servant, an apostle, all of those things. He suffered more, he did more, he worked harder. He writes this, let's see, this would be about six years later than 2 Corinthians. But whatever were gains to me, the things I just read, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What did he tell us in chapter 10? If you're going to boast, boast in Christ, period. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, that He just described, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 10 is completely fulfilled by the Apostle Paul a couple years after he writes Philippians. Is this your testimony? Verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Do you want the power of his resurrection in your life? And participation in his sufferings. Do you want to participate in his sufferings? Becoming like him in his death. Do you desire that? And so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul makes it clear there and he's making it clear and he will make it clearer here. The only time Paul boasts. He is talking about his Savior. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. This is a difficult testimony. This is Paul's reality. Paul is not boasting yet. Keep that in mind. None of this is Paul's boasting. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Paul's not boasting. I pause to think about that for a minute. The, the testing done was that 40 lashes or more usually killed a person. 
When we see the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Paul had that done to him five times. Jesus, it was believed when you study the resurrection that they, they whipped him 41 or 42 times just to take it beyond what they did with other prisoners because of who he claimed to be. But Paul was flogged five times. Um, and just thinking about that, you know, whips with shards of glass and metal that would, that would be pressed in by a whip, stick in under your flesh, and then the whip would be pulled down just to literally shred a person's back. That was done to Paul five times. I'm speaking about Paul. Paul is not boasting here. Verse 8. Three times. Oops, I'm in the wrong place. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Well, if we go back to Acts chapter 16, we know when he was beaten in rod, with rods. When he went to Philippi. The problem is, this was written before that. So Paul was beaten with rods at least four times. Where they literally would have taken something like we would have as a baseball bat. And they would have gathered around him, stripped him naked and beaten him with sticks, with clubs. Three times he says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. We go back to, um, it would be in Lystra, where Timothy probably first saw Paul, and he was stoned to death, um, and then came back to life, is the way I understand the passage. This one of the times that we would have seen these stonings in the Bible, in the book of Acts, reading on, three times I was shipwrecked. We think, well, he was, we know he was shipwrecked off of Malta, right? Wait a minute. This is written years before he went to Malta. So at least four times Paul was shipwrecked. Um, adding to this list, verse 26. All right, we're not done with verse 25 yet. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Well, he spent two weeks in the open sea at Malta. But here's another time where Paul was probably floating on driftwood or something in the middle of the sea because of a storm. Verse 26. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. And we read about that extensively in the first half of this chapter, verse 27. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. This is Paul's personal testimony. This is um, so extensive, so graphic. Let's look at that last verse because I want to go immediately from that verse to Philippians chapter 4. Verse 27, I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. We can make a mistake going to First Philippians chapter 4. Um, if you see a, a shirt or a sign or somebody's favorite verse, it will often be Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The Apostle Paul lived a life in constant danger, in constant beatings, in constant floggings, without food, shipwrecked, chased by the Jews, chased by the Gentiles, punished, mocked, and persecuted. And he writes 2 Corinthians in 56 AD. This is six years later that he writes Philippians. And he's writing now from a Roman house arrest, chained to two Roman guards. The, like I said, the, a lot of the afflictions 
got harder and harder and harder and more extensive until Paul was ultimately put to death. So the six years between 2 Corinthians and here isn't even in his testimony in chapter 12, in chapter 11. So let's go back to verse 12 to see what he's really talking about in Philippians 4. Philippians 4, 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is a perfect example of how the Bible is preventatives and preparations and not remedies. So Paul facing a mob. Paul being tied again to a pole so that they could rip his back open. Paul being in a prison cell approached each of those moments with a mantra of, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He was the most demonstrative human being that ever walked the planet. And when he says in Philippians that we read earlier to participate in his sufferings, it's been granted, he says in Philippians 1, to suffer like Christ suffered. The God-man, the only person who had more influence in the history of man, is Jesus Christ. Suffering is the brightest light of God on planet Earth. And Paul is teaching us that here. I want to get through a lot of verses so we can see the overall. So let's go right back into the text. Verse 28. Here's Paul's biggest concern, his heaviest burden. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Here's Paul's relating to people and as, as I grow, as Dave and Wayne grow, but as each of you grow, this is what needs to grow in us. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. I hurt God in my knowledge, in my understanding, in my experience, more than my knowledge and experience of others. But my knowledge and experience of others, when I, when I plead with you as a shepherd to study the Bible, to be a part of a ministry in the church, to participate more and more, that's from the heart. It's not from Jim's heart. It's from the heart of Christ. If I participate in the heart of Christ, we talked about this before a prayer meeting this morning. The number one goal of God is, anyone? What's his purpose on planet Earth? His purpose is always the same. To make you like Christ. That is the purpose of God. When you simple the gospel down to its simplest form, the first thing that Jesus did when he chose a disciple, the first words out of his mouth weren't pray a prayer. They weren't, um, do you believe in this doctrine? What did he say to the first people he met? Follow me. That's the call of God. The promise of God follows the call of God. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. All we have to do, all we have to know, all the, all the doctrines and everything in the Bible, all we have to do is follow Jesus. If I follow Paul, I follow Jesus because the Word of God says so. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul and Jesus always quote the Bible into their difficult moments. They're always, obviously Jesus knows word for word. Paul continually, his prayer, 
What do I pray for if a person's going through this? What if they're going through this? What if they're going through that? Paul's prayer is always, I pray that they grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can't pray a higher level prayer for a person going through anything. What does he want to do in my worst moment? The same thing that he wants to do in my best moment. He wants to make me like Christ. Which moments make me the most like Christ? The difficult ones. The difficult ones. Which moments, according to Christ, make me more visible as a follower of Christ? The difficult ones. If things that I can go through on my own seemingly resources, there's no explanation, no understanding that needs to be had. But if you saw Paul being flogged, you wouldn't see a change in his mantra. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is the fifth time I've been flogged, by the way, gentlemen, is your time. No, I'm only going to boast in Jesus. You can whip me again, I'm going to boast in Jesus. You can beat me with rods, I'm going to boast in Jesus. I can be at a moment where a thousand people get saved, I'm going to boast in Jesus. I'm going to have a great day, I'm going to boast in Jesus. I'm going to have a horrible day, I'm going to boast in Jesus. That's what I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength means. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he's, he's calling elders from within the church. And he is calling us to be obedient and to be sensitive. Um, I want to read verses 28 and 29 before we go there. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. Let's go to 1 Peter quickly. Chapter 5. Paul, Peter is telling us to be what Paul is describing there. Who, who is going through something difficult that I don't feel it with him? Who is not following Christ that I do not inwardly burn? He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. Be a shepherd, in other words. Sheep can't do very much. They can't experience very much without a shepherd. As God wants you to be not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Turn to Galatians chapter 6, where Paul speaks further on this attitude of burning inwardly when somebody falls into sin. When you, when you walk up the way from the Lord, it hurts Jesus. When you walk away from the Lord and Paul knows you, it hurts Paul. When you walk away from the Lord and I know you, it should hurt me. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, which is, we talked about in Sunday school, obey, obedience. That's what it means. That's what Jesus and John and everyone Paul says in Romans 8. But you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves. Or you also may be tempted. Carry each other, Paul is talking about in verses 28 and 29 of 2 Corinthians 11. And in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. There's that not comparing yourself to someone else. Then they can take pride in themselves without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is ex explaining all of this, explaining all that he has been through, and he is not boasting yet, but he's about to. He has talked about boasting. He's compared human boasting so that even Paul's floggings and his beatings are a human boasting. It gives me a deep appreciation for Paul, but that's not what he wants to teach me. 
He wants me to join Jesus in the sufferings, but verse 30, this is where Paul's boast begins. If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weaknesses. Do you know what is the most valuable about you to Jesus Christ? Your weaknesses. The things that you and I say, I could serve the Lord better or I'll be able to serve him in the future if he would take this away. If he would heal this, provide for this, touch this and do this. Paul says, if we're going to boast, we don't boast in the things we do well. We boast in our weaknesses. And it's going to make sense when we conclude this message today. But Paul starts the boasting by saying, the things about you that make you the most uncomfortable, the most inadequate, the most doubtful, the most fearful, the most likely to shrink back. That's what Jesus wants. That's what he wants to use. Paul was a, a shy introvert homely, low of stature, human being. And God called him to things outside of his comfort zone continuously. He wants us to look in the mirror and say, okay, what's the five weakest things of Jim McDowell? And then step back and say, how does God want to use them? How is he going to position me then? And why is that so important? Verse 31. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas and the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through their hands. This is the provision of God, an unusual group of people under King Aretas who wanted to put Paul in prison at the very outset of his ministry. But I want to get right back into his boasting. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, which is paradise. We have the sky, we have the galaxies, we have where God resides. That's a biblical picture of heaven number one, heaven number two, heaven number three, but he will even make it more clear as we go on. So verse two, I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up to a third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but the Lord knows. From a timing aspect, and I don't, I'm, I always want to know the sequence of things. Um, I used to think that this was Paul's stoning in Lystra, but the, the dates don't match. That's not 14 years before 56 AD. Um, so first of all, I want us to go to Acts chapter 9 for just a second. Acts chapter 9 when we see Paul stopped on the road to Damascus, we saw that in the end of chapter 11, he took us back to Damascus, back to the beginning, back where he was confronted by God. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 15 and 16, God is speaking to Ananias. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, exclamation mark, this man, meaning Saul at that time, the apostle Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Look at verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How all in was Paul? You just got saved, Paul. How sure are you this is the right person? How sure are you that you will follow him? The Bible is a book of preparation rather than a book of remedies. So everything that we read about Paul that he has been through... Plus, I noted that the shipwreck at Malta wasn't there. The imprisonments in Rome twice weren't there. The beating with rods had another one to be added to it. We don't know how many times if Paul was 
stoned to death in this situation where he saw the third heaven, then this is another instant we don't know about. So in 37 AD, about four years after Christ rose from the dead, Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus, and he says, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I am the Lord. I am Jesus. Paul's mind is immediately surrendered to who this is. And then Jesus tells Ananias, when you get there, and when I talk to Paul, um, when I illuminate him, I'm going to show him all of these floggings, all of these beatings, all of these shipwrecks, all of these bandits, all of these people. And Paul is so moved that Christ died for him and sought him out that he says, I'll go. I'll go wherever you send me into whatever circumstances you send me if you will be glorified by my going. So in about 37 AD, Paul is saved. He starts his missionary journey about 47 AD. This moment where he sees heaven is halfway between, about 42 AD. So he's saved, he sees everything that he's gonna face, and then he sees heaven, and then he begins his ministry. I don't know if it's humanly possible to just see all of the was gonna to come to Paul without seeing heaven. But he tells us here that he saw both. That he saw the, the magnificence that Isaiah saw when he saw heaven, and that Daniel saw, and that John sees in Revelation. And he saw those things. And then in about 47 AD, then he begins his ministry. This letter is written in 56 AD. So when we look to Philippians, that's about 62 AD. And about Five years after that, Paul is taken to the guillotine and put to death. What was he praying? Jesus be glorified. If, if God can get us to a place where in our deepest, darkest, most difficult moments, which by the way, if you follow Christ, you're probably going to be inside the church. If he can get us to a place where the answer to the question is, how do you, how do you go on? Christ. It's about him. The, the spiritual and physical endorphins that go into our body from that position, the world does not know. The things that we send into our being allowed Paul moved Paul, motivated Paul to face beating after beating after beating with this mantra of, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I know I'm walking with the Lord. I know that when I pray, he hears me. And I know if those two things are true, then this beating is in the path for Christ. So I think of that. I'm thinking of the um, 1 John 5, 14, which is, Right after John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. The next verse says, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Let me say that again. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, we know he hears us. The next verse says, and we know that if he hears us, we know that we have what we've asked of him. Paul wasn't praying, end this suffering. Deal with these opponents of Christ. He was praying, take me through this by your power with my eyes fixed on you. So we read in chapter four of this same letter, fix your eyes on the things that are eternal because what you see is temporary and what you're headed toward is eternal. Paul did that. He didn't just write that. Let's go back to the text. We pick it up in verse 30. 
I'm sorry, we're going to, in chapter 12, let's pick it up in verse 2 again. I know a man, Paul is unwilling to boast in Paul, so he's going to boast about what God did as if Paul is speaking in third person. I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. That's how John describes being raptured in Revelation chapter 4, the first two verses. Verse 3. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. So he calls it the third heaven earlier. He's talking about heaven, literally where God dwells. Was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. So five years after he was saved, five years before he leaves Antioch as a missionary, he is caught up to heaven, and the things are so inexpressible. There are two truths here that if I wrote it down, it wouldn't capture it, Paul is saying. But he's also saying the people that go to heaven and see it and come back are not permitted to tell. Which... Very practically, anyone who writes a book about, I went to heaven and I saw this and I came back. No, you didn't. Because it says right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4 that no one is permitted to tell. Reading on verse 5, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself. Except about my weaknesses. Paul is only willing to boast about his weaknesses. Reading on. Even if I chose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassing great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from being, becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. It was so incredible what Paul saw. He has already immersed himself in the reality that my weaknesses are my strengths. My sufferings are my victories. My weaknesses are my strengths because I can't do it. Remember in, in chapter, I think it was two of this letter, he said, I reached a point where this is it. This is the end of Paul. I'm going to leave this earth. There's no way out of this. And Paul says that Christ put me in that situation so that I would rely on him and not Paul. So he's saying the same thing here, that he saw something so magnificent. Five years after he was saved, he was so overwhelmed um, that he, he couldn't process it well. He didn't know, um, is, should I just go tell people what to look forward to if they get saved? Or should I be like Thomas being told by Jesus, blessed are the people who don't see and yet believe. Jesus is telling Paul, it's not about what you saw. It's about following me. So, Jesus gives Satan permission to inflict Paul. When would he be healed? Never. Never in this lifetime. This is the only time that I'm aware of in the Bible where Paul prays for healing. And he is pleading with God as we read on. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. I'll ask Paul in heaven, but he's praying things like, God, I, I, I've been through a lot. I'm going through a lot. I will go through a lot. But this physical sickness that you have given me I can't do it and he pleads with God and obviously he wouldn't have that short of a prayer and he would have had Christ in mind 
I, I want to serve you more. I want to bring more people to you. I want the world to know who you are. I want them to understand even why um, you allowed me to see heaven. And he pleads with him on three different occasions. Verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. We have, I listened to this woman from this ministry, 10 million thumbprints. There are things going on in this world to people and to Christians that I won't even describe in this room. And there's sickness and disease and plagues and all of these things going on that are happening to Christians. And for many of those Christians, because God does heal, many times God says, in my purpose, you will not recover. In my purpose, my power will be magnified in your suffering. And you will never regret it when you meet me. Um, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 for just a second. This is a promise of God that Paul is realizing in his entire life from the time he meets Christ on, including when he pleads with God to heal him. It says in chapter 9, verse 8, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, how about all the things we just read about Paul, and at all times, every one of those moments, including this Satan-inflicted suffering that would extend to the rest of Paul's life, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So as we go back to chapter 12, let's, let's have that in mind as we read verse 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When is the power of Christ perfect on earth? Suffering. Persecution. Me going through something that me thinks I can't go through. That's when perfection is displayed on earth. That's when Christ becomes visible and I become less visible. That's when religion is separated from relationship. And it becomes apparent that everything that's important is vertical. And it has itself, as Hebrews 6 says, with an anchor in heaven where Christ goes behind the curtain. And he, all you have to do, Jim McDowell, is follow me. If you follow me, Jim McDowell, no matter how dark it looks, no matter how many trials you face, no matter what you end up in, no matter how extensive the suffering is, I'm there. I'm with you and I've already given you everything you need. If he has our mind wrapped around that, more people will be in heaven. If he can have my mind on the same plane as Paul's, verse 10, here's Paul's mind. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's not, there, there's no merit badge of suffering. There is no, well, then I need to find a place, go down to that church in Mexico and crawl on my knees. No. He wants to position you strategically in places that you won't run away from. And if he can do that with you, then he will let your weaknesses surface. And he will shine a light on Christ. 
and people will follow him. That, that promise back in chapter 9, I want to read it again in verse 8, is so inclusive of everything. And God is able to bless you abundantly. Suffering is a, according to the Beatitudes in Matthew, is the highest level of blessing for a human being is to suffer in the name of Christ. So it brings him the most glory and it brings you the most blessing. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This book is so full of promises. They're, they're to prepare you. They're to strengthen you. They're to say, okay, if I walk with Christ, John 8, 12, then if I follow him as he is the light of the world, I will never walk in darkness. If I just follow Christ, if I just do what he says, all of the promises are mine. So I found this out this week. How many promises do you think there are in the Bible? I'll, I'll take three guesses. Not if it takes all day, but I'll take three guesses. Because <laughs> I talked to her yesterday. <laughs> 8,840 some promises in this book. Let me ask you a strategic question. Raise your hand or don't raise your hand. In your, just raise it in your mind. Have you read Isaiah this year? In the last 12 months, did you read the book of Isaiah? Of the 8,000, 1,000 of them are in Isaiah. Have you read the Psalms this year? Psalm 37 has more promises in it than any chapter in the Bible. There are 8,000 promises in the Bible. There's a, there's a big chunk of them that are to Jews who are our heritage. But the New Testament is full of promises. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength is a promise. It's not just Paul's testimony. It's a promise that everything that he will call you to, you will receive a blessing for. He wants us to be Mariana sailfish. All right, I got everybody's attention. Creation so magnifies God that there is a, not sailfish, as Mariana snailfish that lives as far under the water as Mount Everest is high. About Mount Everest is about 29,000 feet up or about five miles, something like that. There's no light. There's seemingly nothing to our eyes as, as you send something down there to take a picture. But God designed this snail so that its skull flexes. And he put inside this snail, um, like if you're standing in water this deep, you know how in a swimming pool, if you dive to the bottom to get something off the bottom, how the pressure starts pushing on you, your ears start popping. Um, surface level water compared to where this snail is, is a thousand times greater pushing on this. Literally, if you took a submarine that, that was this thick down there, it would crush it like a can. But he put pressure in the DNA of this snail that is greater than a thousand times the pressure of water. All I'm saying to use that as a metaphor is he put more than that in us. There is nothing in this world that is more powerful than what is in me. So what does this snailfish do? He goes on with his life as if it's how it's supposed to be. In complete darkness, 29,000 feet down. So what should I do? I should go on with my life with the truth that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What do I need to know? What, give me a doctor. Follow Christ. Follow Paul. Because if you do, he talks about my grace being sufficient. If you said to some, if somebody asked me the question and I, they said to me, well, what's he tell Paul when he asks, please, Lord, take this away. 
please, Lord, take this away. Please, Lord, take this away. Paul, my grace is sufficient. If my answer is, well, you're saved. That's all you need to know. That's not what Paul is saying. If, if we wrote on this wall everything that we know about grace, we would be so undershooting what grace is. But let's look at this aspect of grace quickly as we close. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll look at some of the apostles describing the effects of grace. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. The purpose of God is what? To change you. Paul's extent of changing is how? By the grace of God. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul did more than any other servant of Christ, but not Paul. The grace of God did it. How did Paul get beaten five times? Beaten with rods four times, all those shipwrecks, taking the gospel everywhere God told him to by grace. See, when we just take a, a, a low shot at grace, we say, well, by grace you're saved through faith. Give me some of that grace. I want to be on my way. It is grace that makes the statement, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, true. What is he going to give me? When we read that verse in 2 Corinthians 9, he's going to give me grace so that I can do whatever he asks me to do. In fact, grace is stored for me. Waiting, let's look quickly at James 4, 6. Look at another apostle. James chapter 4 and verse 6. These are, we'll go through these quickly. They're all going to say the same thing. Give us a different understanding, a more a, a broader understanding of grace. Chapter 4 and verse 6. But he gives us more grace. And he's talking about this bickering and quarreling within a, a, a church body. But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says he, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. What is that? That's grace. Um, turn to First um, Peter chapter 4. As Peter looks at grace. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So we see 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8 in that, that you as an individual have been given grace and a uniqueness to every other person who will ever live to do everything he will ever ask you to do. You will never have a shortness of grace. And Jude talks about grace. Turn to the book of Jude in closing, which unfortunately is true in Jude's day and is true in our day of what has happened with grace. In Jude ch chapter 1, verse 4, for certain individuals whose condemnation these false apostles that Paul's writing about was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. What's Jude saying there? Sounds a lot like today in the church. Grace covers it. If you turn on the radio and you hear songs about grace, you hear things like grace says it doesn't matter. Where's that Bible verse at? Grace says it doesn't matter. I can, my, his grace is sufficient for everything I do. Paul says grace was not ineffective with me. I worked harder than everybody. Not I, but by grace. Grace never says it doesn't matter. Grace says it matters more what I do because it's Jesus Christ that I represent. In John chapter one is Jesus comes on the scene. He is introduced as the one full of grace and truth. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the Apostle Paul this morning, and, and I will stay in line with Paul's testimony that it's not about Paul. It's not about um, what he accomplished, but it's about your son, Jesus Christ. I can leave here today knowing that if I follow him, everything I need is provided. I don't have to know how he will do what he's going to do in order for me to praise him. I need to follow John's example and know that if I ask anything according to his will, that he hears me. And if he hears me asking anything according to his will, I know that I have what I've asked of him. So in line with the will that is so clear from the Bible, I pray for the people in this room to be changed. To be like Christ and less like themselves. And I ask you to start with me in Jesus' name. Amen.